Let's do it. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 15 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on January 19th, 2020. XEP, of course, where we discuss all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost, and in this week we'll be discussing Sony's decision to abstain from E3 for the second year in a row. We'll look at the delays of Cyberpunk and Marvel's Avengers and just what they do to the 2020 slate of games, and then last Lastly, we'll address any listener questions you may have written in. Enjoy, guys. All right, everyone. Fantastic to have you along for the ride this week. Two major games have been delayed and pushed back to September by their respective publishers. Now, we have to look at a couple different instances for this. The first I think it's worth discussing is Marvel's Avengers. Initially slated to come out on May 15th, 2020, now pushed back down to September 4th. Fourth. Now, this offers a number of different theories and concerns and things to be happy about. However, the game simply didn't look ready, and to give time for it to be prepped for the launch that you want, given that it is indeed a live service game, I find this to be good news. Avengers is a premise that really needs to land on its first try. We've seen failures in games like Anthem and Sea of Thieves, The Division, several other live service games. If you don't launch a live service game well, it really can all fall apart around you and take years to recover not just the brand name, but the game's community overall. We've seen some do it quite successfully and others just not be able to find their stride. So for Square Enix to push Marvel's Avengers back down to September, I'm quite happy about that news. I think it's a good thing overall. In all the coverage I had seen of the game, what I my initial impressions are there's a lot of promise there, but it didn't look that, like there was a lot of meat on the bones. Indeed, a lot of people are saying that, that played the game that the gameplay was varying between characters. The idea that Iron Man was generic cool but generic whereas Black Widow and Captain America felt really good and you really want to nail the feel of all of those characters given their prowess in common entertainment culture at the moment we've we've seen Endgame going come and go Marvel's phase one two and three just certainly hit and and rose awareness for the Avengers as characters and the game needs to reflect a lot of that it may not be set in the same universe the characters may be voiced differently they may indeed as we know look quite different that is all well and good, but their brand name carries a great deal of weight, and you want that game to hit well. The push to September, though, does bring up a number of different cross-gen questions, and that's something we're going to talk about with Cyberpunk as well. But given that this is a live service game launching in September, right around when we expect the new systems to launch, we expect PS5 and, and Xbox Series X to launch in perhaps November, maybe October, even September, depending on how they want to attack the holiday season and just what their supply line chains are. This would suggest that this game will be PS4, Xbox One, and cross-gen all the way up. Similar to how I would, would expect we looked at DC Universe Online back in the PS3 to PS4 transition or the Warframe transition between generations. 
it is a different thing to discuss as we did last week, the value of exclusives and what exclusive means to different people in the next generation. You know, do you have Series X exclusives or not? It's a different conversation when you have a live service game. The idea that Destiny and Sea of Thieves will just work on your next gen and whether or not the graphics are up might not be as important as say Hellblade 2. When you see Senua's Saga, you want to see that full-on next-gen beauty that it can be on the Series X in a live service game that might not be as important. Certainly will be important to some, but it might just be a different type of importance when you look at it. Uh, I often think of and discuss when we look at cross-gen and when we look at where people are playing their games, it's really none of my business what system you choose to play on. If you and I are enjoying Halo Infinite, it's not my business to say whether or not you're having a better or worse time because you're on an Xbox One S, an Xbox One X, or an Xbox Series X. I don't care. I want to play with my friends. Simple as that. If you're having a blast playing Halo Infinite, whatever system you're on, sweet. I don't care. I'm playing the way I want to play. You should indeed be able to play the way you want to play. And with a live service game like Marvel's Avengers, I would imagine that whomever, wherever they log in, they're going to be getting a good experience if indeed this delay allows them to, to fix and smooth out the gameplay experience and refine a few things. The problem also with Avengers is that we've seen those games done well in other places. God of War nailed the Leviathan Axe feel. Thor's hammer had better feel as good or close to it, otherwise the comparisons will be rather damning. Similarly speaking, we've seen, uh, for, not first person, but we've seen ground-based combat in the Arkham games. Uh, for a non-superpowered being, you'd have to imagine Black Widow needs to feel as good. Captain America's shield throw should combine the Leviathan Axe with a Batman level of combat or better. And then lastly, you've got Iron Man, and one thing Anthem did well was show us that you could fly around and be Iron Man and feel cool. They indeed have to nail all of those things in order to avoid damning comparisons to them. So what you're hoping for is a not just a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none, but really mastering the vibe and feel between those. So here's hoping this delay helps Marvel's Avengers. I'm fine with it. I do not mind it one bit. There was already a crowded slate uh, early in the year. It looks like we're going to have a clouded slate later in the year. But such is the plight of gaming, and I have a, a thought on that bigger aspect in just a moment. But we should also discuss, discuss the other delay that is coming up in CD Projekt Red as they push Cyberpunk from April 16th all the way back to September 17th, 2020, just a few weeks after Avengers hits, then we'll be graced with what is sure to be a many, many, many hour investment of cyberpunk. Now that world is ripe and fascinating with a number of different stories for gamers to experience there. Of course, the Keanu Reeves reveal was epic to the nth degree, not just memeable, but exciting, beautiful, all hands-on experiences with that brought reports of, of good vibes and, and really passionate feelings coming out of it. And so I am, while not personally excited by the cyberpunk aesthetic, I'm excited for this game to hit so we can see the community reactions therein. What is all the more interesting though is that CDPR has said they have no plans to support NextGen at this time. And that concern carries less weight given that we know content is all going to be forward compatible with Xbox Series X. And I believe Sony has made a similar statement regarding their PS5 being backward compatible with PS4. 
And that is to suggest if CDPR does not choose to put out a Series X version, we'll still be able to enjoy that game just fine with perhaps some on-box or local upscaled versions. Uh, I'm very curious to see how we approach that, but the cross-gen arguments do ease the burdens of releasing for an older console. In many ways, if you're a publisher, you don't want to ignore the 50-plus million Xbox Ones or the 100-plus million PS4s out there because it will bring your audience a better experience to have a more ripe community. And cross-gen, such as Microsoft is using it, excites me so much because I get to play on my Series X when it's available and I don't need to miss out on the Cyberpunk experience, the Avengers experience. I'm not leaving my friends in Halo Infinite behind. I really appreciate that. Now, again, CDPR gets in the news uh, with a follow-up statement discussing how the delay will not reduce the amount of crunch that the studio puts out. If anyone remembers, back when The Witcher 3 was coming out and, and hit fans and people went elated for it with so many accolades and awards, and Witcher 3 all deserve it of those things, incredible experience. And CD Projekt Red treated fans right with 17 different pieces of DLC. That is incredible. However... The news also came out that they were crunching to the nth degree all the way up to launch. And we have seen a backlash from gamers as they find out about developers being forced to or put in situations where they need to crunch. The, the counter argument to that is gamers continue to buy games knowing full well they have been crunched on in their development. And that is a catch-22 for the moral aspect of the dilemma and a conundrum for publishers who want to be transparent but who also want to make money. And how we navigate that as gamers is a difficult one. CDPR now saying they're going to still have to crunch to get Cyberpunk out at the right time. And some people quite effectively saying, hey, please don't do that. Please allow your, your employees to be relaxed and to not overwork themselves. By the same token, you have to imagine they're going to buy it at launch right away, not taking a moral stance there. And the question becomes, do we as gamers need to take a moral stance on those particular issues? Is that our place to do so? And I think that's up to each individual to take into account what it is they value morally, philosophically, entertainment-wise, and where they place it on the, that spectrum, because there is no right answer. There is no silver bullet catch-all fix to any of that. You'd have to hope and encourage and, and see that as news stories come out about crunch, and that they can be rather damning to certain publishers, perhaps they want to reduce the amount that they do and continue to treat their employees well or better than they were prior you have to hope that there's a natural balance that begins to take place. I, for one, uh, I'm excited to see where Cyberpunk comes out of there. I hope they don't crunch too much. I hope we don't see any you know, destructive or Jason Schreier-esque articles that need to rightfully be written. Uh, I hope that that doesn't need to happen. Yeah, I, I very much appreciate the spotlight that comes on it because I think it can uh, really help the overall culture if we do spotlight those things. But if we don't, I think we'd be ignoring a rather rather negative trend amongst generationally created games and so here's hoping that that continues to subside and that CDPR sees that and tries to work to mitigate and reduce the amount of crunch needed by its studio. Now on to the bigger issue of whether or not we are surprised by the, these delays. I am not at all surprised. It's said that CDPR, the game is done, and they are currently in a bug-squashing phase. Happy to see that. Happy to see that they've got, they're working their way through and that their primary game is done. However, I do think CDPR and Square Enix carry a different weight when they delay a game. I have confidence to say, I have a great deal of confidence in CDPR to bring us a fantastic AAA pristine product, and that is because I've seen The Witcher 3 and how great it can be. 
Square Enix, on the other hand, I do not have that same confidence for Marvel's Avengers. As I said, the jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none curse could indeed haunt them. And similarly, we've not seen perfection out of Square Enix of late. They also delayed, I believe, Final Fantasy VII. So I think each one of these delays carries a different weight. And it's not surprising to either of them to delay given the scale that they are going for. The question will be, how receptive are gamers to these things? Will they affect sales? For my money and for my guesstimates, I don't think it'll affect sales at all. Marvel's Avengers will be purchased and experienced right away for everybody because of the weight of that brand and franchise. Now, look all the way back, and I cite evidence of MPD sales for the 2010s. Battlefront 1, Star Wars Battlefront 1, charted among the 20 best-selling games throughout the decade across all systems. And that could have been morbid curiosity, but it also could be just that the Star Wars brand carries such a tremendous weight. Battlefront 1, I would argue, very disappointing. Even at its, its, at its pinnacle when they had the most content out for it, and it was so cheap and easy to access, which could have contributed to those sales and those unit sales, I, I should say, it, it wasn't that great. It lacked a lot that the Battlefront 2, now in its current state, has. But it charted and it did well. And that's the weight of a franchise powerhouse that is Star Wars. I believe that currently, the way that the zeitgeist is, Marvel's Avengers carries even greater weight now than Battlefront did then. Here's hoping. Here's hoping indeed. Square Enix is, oh goodness, I, I struggle to just elaborate on how I feel about it. I just am not convinced by the footage I've seen and the anecdotes I've heard. But... If this delay allows them to bring the product that I so desperately want, I do want to fly around feeling like Iron Man. I do want to throw Thor's hammer and it feel special. I do want to battle as Captain America and Black Widow and so many other great characters. I want them to feel like those characters. We've seen Spider-Man done well. Get it right. And so here's hoping that we get that from Square Enix and they continue to evolve their live service game. Let me know what you think about this because that's a, it's a weighted topic. These delays can be a, a weighted level of franchises from both uh, Cyberpunk and from Avengers. And do you think gamers are going to pick it up given the, the things that we know about it? Do you think it'll be more of a curiosity or just pure elated excitement? I would imagine a bit of both and, and we're going to be happy with the results regardless. I'm just so excited to see what that cross-gen means for it. Will we see upscaled versions? I think CDR is playing fast and loose with their we have no plans for next-gen. We'll see. We'll check it out. On to our next topic, and it certainly is a weighted and layered one, as Sony, for the second year in a row, is skipping E3 while Microsoft is not. Now, in order to fully gather the context of this situation, you have to step back and peel back several layers of viewpoints and perspectives. First, I ask that you consider E3 has likely lost the trust of a number of different press outlets given their public information leak last year. Releasing many different journalists' personal information to the public certainly had to jade a number of relationships between major and small outlets with the ESA, thus making a lot of people question whether or not they need to go to E3. Further asking whether or not they need to, to go to E3 at all for any of the major companies or press outlets covering them has to be that E3's audience has been dwindling just a bit over recent years. It was roughly 69,000 in 2017, and then it diminished a bit, uh, so little down to 66,000. And 66,000 is no number to, to scoff at by any means. However, given the comparative context of something like Gamescom, which does north of 300,000, you might begin to question, quite logically so, whether or not E3 is worth it. 
It was Imran Khan of Kinda Funny who I believe stated that it cost companies roughly $40 million to provide a huge major show on the scale of Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo. It makes perfect sense then that you would see Sony consider whether or not they are valued or need to be there. I remind you that when Sony skipped out on E3 last year, data does not lie. And while they didn't have any major games to announce or show on the level of Spider-Man or God of War, they still had plenty of units sold. And you cannot argue that 100 plus million units sold is impressive and something worthy of tipping your hat to. And they did that without E3. The other data to consider is that the Switch launched without E3. So the question of E3 relevance is a logical one. Microsoft, for its take, is certainly in a win-win category. They own the former Nokia, now Microsoft Theater, where they hosted E3 last year, of which I got to attend, and I do have some personal bias in my experience there. But in going to Xbox Fan Fest and seeing their E3 presentation on site, it was quite clear that Microsoft could afford to, quote, skip E3 and still have their own very related similar event very close by, similar to the way Bethesda did, similar to the way EA does, or they could very much say they're there a part of E3 and it's a five minute walk between the convention center and the Microsoft theater. So Microsoft's certainly in a win-win scenario and Sony can afford to skip out. It clearly doesn't seem to hurt them that much. Nintendo can do their own thing. The Nintendo Directs could be announced two days prior and everybody would tune in. Sony has the state of play. They have Gamescom. They have Paris Games Week. There are many different places that you could go for a far more affordable price. And that leads us to the very obvious and simple question, is E3 relevant any longer? And I don't know that it is. I think E3 needs to die as it stands and change just a bit. That does not mean Microsoft or Sony or Nintendo should skip out forever. It doesn't mean they should go forever. It just means that we, we as gamers and those major companies should adjust what it is they're trying to accomplish at E3. There is a ludicrous amount of money that has to be spent by some companies in order to attend, in order to show their game for a week. When a video, when more, more intimate set settings like packs could serve the purpose of getting their game out to the public. And that comes to the question of viability and visibility. You know, where do you want your game to be? Crowded show floor with press outlets, crowded show floor with gamers who have Twitter, who have Instagram. And I don't know the dis distinctive answer, but I do know that if a company has to spend $40 million to show off their major stuff, and we're talking about the Sony, Nintendo, Microsoft levels, that's just a, a re remarkable amount of money for potentially very little gain. Remind you of the Game Awards. 42 million people tuned in to watch the Series X announcement. Incredible. The Switch didn't need E3, and it launched beautifully, even though it had weird commercials in the lead-up. Sony continues to sell quite a few consoles without their level of AAA stellar game releases that, that occurred prior to 2019. So whether or not E3 is relevant, I think it can go. For my part, though, Microsoft is absolutely in a win-win scenario. They can afford to say they're there. They can afford to say they're not there. And because they own that theater and they have that space and they welcome people in, I think that's fantastic. They could extend FanFest out into a week and bring different fans in it for different increments of days and cycle through quite a few thousand people to see the games that are on display. When we were in that theater last year, I played so many games on the level of Borderlands 3 all the way down to the smaller indie titles like After Party. Fantastic! That's AAA, AA, and indie games all available to it, and they had so many screens available for gamers to check out. Possibly a week-long event might be worthwhile for them to consider. I love that Sony's skipping it. I love that Microsoft's not. 
I love that Nintendo does their own thing. All of these companies seem to be doing it right for their fan bases, and the fact that they're doing it differently and still being successful is pretty darn incredible, and I, for one, am quite glad to see it happen. This brings me to another topic. With all the delays that are coming out, with all the major heavy hitters that are coming in 2020, and I'm excited for so many of them, from the smallest, like, silly Zombie Army 4 and Darksiders Genesis, all the way up to Resident Evil 3, Disintegration, Halo Infinite, etc., from big to small, there are quite a few incredible gaming experiences for all different types of genres coming out. And many people say there's too many games. Completely understand that. Love that we mitigate that with Game Pass and subscription services in many ways. But I would encourage any listener of XCP, when you have a thought of too many games or I have to buy this latest game right when it's new in order to experience it, I'd like to remind you that great games will stick around. If they're live service games and you just can't get into that zeitgeist right there, don't chase it. Don't chase that zeitgeist. Games will always be there. Single player experiences will always be there. If, if somebody ruins a very small thing for you or a very big thing for you, that doesn't stop you from playing a great video game and there's no need to rush through it. In the exception of live services games, those live services will still be around if there's something truly worthwhile to play there. So I would encourage any and all listeners, don't chase the zeitgeist. Don't chase what is in vogue and sacrifice your wallet, your time, uh, and your enjoyment of other games. Those good games will still be there. If you didn't get a chance to play Resident Evil 2 last year, it's still fantastic and you can still check it out. That's great. That's wonderful. If you haven't played God of War, if you haven't played Halo 5 yet, all these good games that are worth your time, old and new, they're still good. In the case of live service games, sometimes they're better than when they release, and you don't need to be there for its launch, and you can allow it to work through its troubles and kerfuffles. So again, don't chase the zeitgeist. Great games will always be great, and live service games that are worth a while will improve. I want to discuss one more topic before we get to listener mail, and it's a strange one and yet so heartwarming, and it it might catch you by surprise. Microsoft as a company, not specifically the Xbox division, but the parent company Microsoft announced that it will be carbon negative by 2030 and remove its overall historical carbon emissions by 2050. Now, why bring this up on a gaming podcast? Well, for a couple reasons. First, because Microsoft is the parent company of Xbox and Xbox is a huge and healthy part of it, I love the idea that a major company, a billion and trillion dollar company is recognizing the need for climate change and that they have a carbon footprint that is fairly impactful on our world climate. And we think about computers and the amount of metals and non-renewable energies, places that are that are being worked into the manufacturing of these products, the amount of energy and power that go into live services and server farms, things like the Azure Cloud, which do power a number of our gaming services as well. The idea that a company is taking the initiative to show and stand admittedly for a PR bit for sure, but work against those emissions, I find very encouraging. Similarly, I like that this company is putting in a billion dollars to work on climate innovation and reduce their their footprint. I think that's very encouraging. Specific to the gaming community, there was a rather inflammatory article that was put out clearly as clickbait, but it talked about how binging games and binging things at home can increase your carbon footprint due to power and server resources. And it's always funny because when they say things like that, they don't word it as, hey, billion dollar company could use renewable resources but doesn't and they want to pass the blame on to you. 
I like to see that Microsoft is is doing something like this and working to bring renewable energy resources, working to reduce its carbon footprint. And as gamers, we can facilitate that. The power of gamers and community is bar none some of the most impressive things. A community that was once mocked and, and judged for being nerdy or silly has done incredible things in the wake of, of shootings, of mass shootings. I know with EA, they raised a number of money for the victims and families back at that uh, Madden football tournament. All the way to the more recent Australian fires, gaming communities raise money to help people. How much have we raised during extra life and cancer research helping communities there? I love to see this on a mass scale because while it's not a disaster in an ecological or, or tragic man-made lo loss of life sense, this is a bigger issue. And to see Microsoft taking steps like this and that gamers can be a part of that aspect in researching the way that we impact with carbon, uh, to me that's worthwhile. I would also imagine that this, these carbon initiatives to try to be carbon negative by 2030 will impact the methods and ways that they produce the Series X, the methods and ways that they produce the hardware and software going forward and that they provide those cloud services. And I'm interested to track this. My question and the accountability that must come in is, are we as gamers going to hold companies like this accountable when they announce PR fluff bits like this? Here's hoping it's not a PR fluff bit because I love to see the initiative. I would like and hope to see Sony, Nintendo, EA, Bethesda, and so many other companies follow suit. There is something to be encouraged about this uh, because it is a, an impending problem that we often don't think about. I apologize for the soapbox there, but I do find it relevant and important to gamers in a way that we may not initially think of as obvious. So bear with me and do indeed check that out. I know there's a number of news stories circling about it, uh, and I, I like it. it just, it's a feel-good thing to see that, hey, people are working for change. I like it. We move on now to listener mail. A number of questions and topics came in this week, and all of which I am excited to check out. I think we'll look at the first one from the Backlogbusters, who reached out on Twitter and said, I'd like you to touch upon Cuphead as a Mii fighter in Smash with music and the prolonged life of the one thanks to Microsoft changing into a gamer-centric country over the past three years. I said country, I meant company, hero company. Uh, Backlogbusters asking really what I think of the Cuphead Mii fighter in Smash, and then whether or not this is prolonging and extending the life of Xbox One, the, the console, and also the franchises. Now, that's a layered question, and I do indeed enjoy those. As for Cuphead as a Mii fighter in Smash, I found that as a bit of an exciting portion and also a bit of a letdown. Cuphead is such a brilliant and amazing character made by Studio MDHR that it's an incredible honor to be included in Smash as a Mii fighter, and Studio MDHR should be very proud of the work they've done, not just on Cuphead the game, but the DLC, and for getting it onto Switch, Microsoft should be applauded for allowing that to happen. And Cuphead, in and of itself, a fantastic character. To be included in such a legendary game as Smash Ultimate, with so many games represented, it's a, a triumphant thing to be very, very proud of. That said, I am sad to see it's not a full character. Cuphead is deserving of being his own full character. There's also the simple logistics of it's easier to make a Mii fighter with a costume and not have to create new movesets. I respect that aspect of it. I don't respect Smash's ridiculous dependence on Fire Emblem characters. So uh, to see yet another Fire Emblem character enter into the arena at the expense of something like Cuphead, which must have been considered at the expense of something like Shovel Knight, which is a trophy in there, that's a bit disappointing. We want to see Smash continue to be the celebration that it is as Sakurai with his infinite talent. And it's, it's oh goodness, is that man talented. If it is meant to be such a celebration of gaming, I'd like to see more franchises represented more equally 
perhaps, than, say, just a slew of Pokemon or a slew of Fire Emblem characters. However, at the end of the day, I can throw on that me character costume and enjoy Cuphead in there, and that is fantastic. So take that for what you will. As for it extending the life of the Xbox One, I don't think that's the case at all. I don't actually think it's helping my Microsoft's Xbox One sales by any means, nor do I think it needs to. Microsoft has transitioned and is transitioning away from hardware dependency, hardware gating. Cuphead is available on Switch. It's available, I believe, on xCloud and will be available on many different places uh, going forward that simply have the Xbox Game Studios brand or the Xbox Game Publishing brand or simply Xbox stated before the game launches in whatever launcher you use. So I don't think it's helping Xbox One at all. I think it's helping an Xbox brand to see it there. All in all, I think it's a good thing. And that music, whew, it's good. It's good stuff. Another question from Mr. Glorious One on Twitter. Mr. Moody asks, do you think Xbox will have an event before E3 to explain the Series X, uh, what the Series X can do with a couple of game reveals, or do they hold off for a big splash at E3? Love the show. Keep it up. Thank you so much for the kind words, my friend. I appreciate you listening to the show. Uh, that is for sure. As for whether or not Xbox will have its own event prior to E3, Yes, I think they will have an inside Xbox uh, or an XO-like event prior to E3. I also think that with the method and way they're trying to create Xbox Game Studios, having one to two exclusives per quarter of varying size and impact, uh, I think it is okay to do that. They do need to have a big splash at E3, if only because they are being at E3, whereas Sony is not. And so that's exciting to see. However, I think we do get an inside Xbox that details several things. We see something where they, they maybe they spotlight the controller or some of the special features of the system. And what is interesting and a luxury that they are afforded is that Sony has not had its major reveal in the same way. Much of the information Sony showed in its February reveal long ago with Mark Cerny, those same details about PS5 were released in a Wired article, whereas Microsoft chose to make the big splash going first at the Game Awards. So what is it that either or any of those companies has to reveal and show? My guesstimation here is that Sony will have its rumored event in February and Microsoft will decide then how and what to respond with. They are not competing in the same way as they once were, but they do compete for mindshare and news cycles. And so I would imagine they'll see what Sony has because they, they, they've gone forward and there's excitement for Series X and discussion. And everything that they talk about now is a Series X game as much as it is an Xbox One game, a Series X service as much as it is an Xbox One service. So for my money, they wait and see just what it is Sony does and then decide how much to reveal in an inside Xbox uh, which needs to change and is changing from what it once was uh, to what it might be later on and going now. The next question comes from Undying Umbra on Twitter. Hello to you. He says, I'd like more talk on hypothetical games in development to be shown at Microsoft's E3. And I have to interpret his question just a bit. My thought on Dying Umbra is that you're wondering what games we are, are rumoring to be in development but have not seen just yet and what could be shown at Microsoft's E3 stage. My mind immediately jumps to Fable. I think Fable is a rumored game that we've heard so much about. It's hypothetically in development. We've heard about it but we have not seen a darn thing about it. Fable is an E3 level game. 
that's what you would show at E3 and not at the uh, aforementioned you know, inside Xbox reveal event kind of thing. Show Fable at E3 and state very clearly that it's far out, if indeed it's far out. Microsoft now can afford to, with their Game Pass 15 Studios subscription model, they can afford to tell you about a game that is a year out, six months out, one quarter out, what have you. But I don't think there is logic in saying, hey, this is five years away, this is four years away. They're going to get away from that because they want to give you the next thing so you don't cancel your subscription, not something four or five years out so that you're like, you know what? I mean, yeah, I could play Bleeding Edge, but really I don't care. I want to play Gears of War, blah, blah, blah. I want to play Forza, blah, 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 blah. Later on, I'm going to cancel and then just go back to it. They want to give you a drip feed of analyses. So that's that's my, my thought on those hypothetical games and i would imagine fable is your heavy hitter there plus a number of things we haven't known about they need new ip they need new ip particularly because every new ip they will show will likely bring new cycles of well remember they canceled Scalebound. remember they canceled this game that game uh, sunset overdrive is now with insomnia They're, that's going to happen and they've got to mitigate and defeat those headlines with their own good current slate of games, not just theoretical content. I very much appreciate data, and I very much appreciate evidence when discussing things like this. So that's my thought process going forward. The last question is very simple, and it comes from Mr. Bland Explosion. Garrett Bland asks, can you go through your My Decade on Xbox? And if you're unfamiliar what he's referring to, TrueAchievements.com did a My Decade at, on Xbox uh, experience in which you can log in, offer your profile, and it will scan your achievements uh, from 2010 all the way to now in order for you to look back at your decade. And this is a good news thing because I would have expected Microsoft to do this, but they did not do a year in review. And it offers a fantastic look back at just how much gaming you had from the 360 in 2010 all the way through year for year, month for month up to now and it scans your achievements talks about hours played rare achievements uh, games that you completed it's wonderful and in pulling up my own chart I can see that I was very active in the 2010s through 2013 midway through that year uh, with my 360 playing a number of different things summer months a bit more heavy given of course that I was a teacher and uh, for a couple of those years and then I, I stopped teaching and I worked as a journalist and I had time in some places Played a lot on my Xbox up till 2013, midway through. But around the time that we found out about the Xbox One and close to its launch, you can see it goes dark. And I was dark on the Xbox platform from midway through 2013 all the way till midway through 2015. I was an almost exclusive PS4 gamer in that time because I thought that Sony was treating its fans better. $100 cheaper, more powerful console, better games to play at the time. And the truth is that that initial Xbox One launch was simply bad. And I don't think we should shy away from saying that. So it was dark on that part. Then Master Chief Collection hit, and I can see that I played that for a while, uh, midway through the generation. And I didn't really get into Xbox until uh, the Xbox One S. The Xbox One S in roughly September, October 2016. And then it kicks off a slew of quite a bit of Xbox gaming and from then on that was my platform of choice with a number of different hours played. Uh, it looks to say that I played on Xbox One during this decade 56% of my time, 360, 42% of my time and I played on Windows 0.9%. Uh, I don't know what that would have been. That's fascinating. 
I had quite a few games completed, 27 games completed. That is 100% achievement rate. Some of those were really cheesy. Some of them were, were like Telltale games. One was a Storm Boy, which took 17 minutes to get a 1,000 gamer score. And in some ways, that sounds like cheesing a system. But I, I played Storm Boy for the, the story, which, and I had a free code, and I checked it out. Um, other stuff was, was more interesting. I really liked some of the sillier games, like Crackdown 3 and, and Starlink. I, I maxed... Max completed those games, got every achievement in them for fun. I also or 1K'd Apex and Jedi Fallen Order and a number of other ones too, so don't misunderstand that. Uh, one of the more, or my rarest achievement came in Sea of Thieves in May 2019. 0.94% uh, unlock rate. That's kind of a neat thing to look at. And it says that my most played uh, genre of games came in the form of, of DC, Batman games, and then the Halo games. And it breaks down my achievements and hours spent in that a really cool thing that True Achievements did, it's hashtag my decade on Xbox if you want to check it out on social media platforms. And if you log in and check in to True Achievements and give that info, you can check it out. I also totally dig the rare achievements. I've unlocked 1,273 rare achievements and 6,487 achievements in general throughout the decade. That's really cool. I don't actually get the context of that. I don't know if that's good or bad, whatever. Um, and then one of the more inflated things, uh, the value of my gamer score is $16,007 uh, priced of games at release. And I certainly didn't spend $16,000. All hail subscription services uh, and free games coming with games with gold and Game Pass and EA Access. Uh, and again, at the early part of the decade and renting from Blockbuster. Kids, Blockbuster was a legendary place that you can see in the movie Captain Marvel where people gave you a little bit of money for an experience. All right, so that finishes up listener mail for this week. Guys, I so greatly enjoyed this episode. And if you are listening to this prior to Tuesday, January 21st, I believe, I would ask that you tweet me on Twitter and give me questions for the incredible Steven Spawn of Able Gamers. I'll be interviewing him on Tuesday of next week, or rather this week when you're listening to it, and we're going to sit down and talk about just what Able Gamers is, what it does for a community of people that might be uh, disabled and want to get into gaming for any number of, of different reasons. I'm so excited to talk to him about the Xbox Adaptive Controller and what his charity does in order to bring gaming to those uh, who might experience gaming differently. So Steven Spawn, Able Gamers, is our next interview interview coming up. I've also got some pretty cool things lined up after that. I'm so excited for that to kick off uh, in late January, early February, and I hope you'll stick around for it. If you do indeed get a chance, it means the world to rate on iTunes if you're an iTunes listener. I've got 15 ratings so far, and I'm very proud and thankful for that, particularly given the youth of the show. Uh, and if you listen on any other platform, sharing is, is so greatly appreciated. You can follow me on Twitter, at InsipidGhost. You can check me out on Mixer at Mixer.com slash InsipidGhost. And, of course, email me at InsipidGhost at gmail.com. That's it for me. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks for listening, guys.